This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning and welcome to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of California, San Diego. I'm Steve Jenner, Curriculum Coordinator for today's lecture, which is being recorded on campus. We are pleased to welcome Professor Peter Smith to Osher for the fifth lecture in our Mexico, uh, master class series on Mexico 20 years after NAFTA. We co-sponsor these lectures with UCSD Center for U.S.-Mexican Studies, which is focused on improving the understanding of Mexico and U.S.-Mexican relations. More information on Osher and U.S.-Mex is available on our respective websites. Today's presentation is entitled, Mexican Democracy in Comparative Perspective. <clears throat> Peter Smith is Distinguished Professor of Political Science at UCSD and the Simon Bolivar Professor of Latin American Studies. He's co-author of Modern Latin America, now in its sixth edition. Please join me in welcoming Professor Smith to Osher. Thank you very much for that gracious introduction. Thanks to you all for being here. And I wonder what it is that I can say, being the last speaker in this series, that hasn't already been said, or would probably disconfirm anything I had to say. So I wondered how I could sort of make an impression, right? So I began by saying, well, I'll wear a coat and tie. Uh, that will really grab their attention, right? And then. Uh, then I'd have to recount my own experience in, in Mexico. Um, I'm here by mistake. Uh, when I graduated from college, you can count the decades since that time, uh, I wanted, like my classmates, to make a tour of Europe. It seemed to be the fashionable thing to do. And I went to uh, the Manhattan Passport Center and got a passport, and it lingered, and it was not used, and it was not used. As I kept running out of funds, and I was approaching graduation, and my dear father said, look, um, you can't go to Europe, but I'll give you a bus fare anywhere you want to go from New York City. <laughs> and I thought, okay, Dad. So uh, my first thought was to go to Montreal to perfect my schoolboy French. Uh, and then I looked at a map and thought, that's not a very long bus ride. I can do better than that. <laughs> so I decided to take a Greyhound bus toward Mexico City. It was 85 hours. In those days, I could do that kind of thing. I arrived in Mexico City not knowing a word of Spanish, not having read a single paper or article or book about Mexico, having no idea where I was, except that I was abroad somewhere. Uh, and of course, that summer changed my life. Uh, Mexico captivated me. I stumbled into graduate school that happened to open a program in Latin American studies, for my sole benefit, I assume, and managed to get through that. And here I am, as a result, decades later, giving a talk about Mexico in comparative perspective. So what is the object of today's discussion? Um, the object is to try to understand politics in Mexico in a comparative context. Now. Comparisons you know, can get boring, and I'll probably bore you with some 
quantitative statistical data that is the basis of a conversation. Don't worry about the numbers. I have to tell my students, do not worry about the numbers. Just listen to me. Uh, but of course, comparisons um, raise methodological questions. You know, can you compare apples and oranges? Is the standard, you know, repost? And actually, you can. You know, you can compare them on shape and color and taste and texture and other things and make a comparison if uh, you uh, want to compare apples and oranges. And of course, every nation has its own mythology of its exceptionalism. Right? And the phrase in Mexico is, como Mexico no hay dos. There's, there's no country like Mexico. Uh, we have our own myth of exceptionalism. Uh, every country has a myth of exceptionalism. Uh, and in, in Mexico, it's very strong for a variety of reasons. You know, we've had special historical experiences, etc., that really make it impossible to compare Mexico with any other country in the world, except maybe Denmark. And then, of course, we're confronting the return of the pre to power as of 2012. And many people thought with the election of an opposition party in the year 2000 that Mexico was really becoming democratic. And then, lo and behold, 12 years later, the pre is back. The dinosaur is back. And there's this fear somehow that uh, Mexican democracy was a kind of uh, short-term error and that Mexico was retrograding and retrogressing to its historical pattern of one-party domination. Uh, by the way, I don't think so, but that's a concern that many people have, that somehow Mexican democracy is weakened or is failing as a consequence of the return to power of the pre in what everybody says was a freely and fairly contested election. So <clears throat> how do you do comparison? Well, I've chosen a number of countries uh, for the basis of a comparison with Mexico. They are Brazil, Chile, Colombia, and Guatemala. Now, you can contest this selection. Uh, other people might have selected other countries. I selected these countries for a variety of reasons. Um, one is that they have sort of common origins with Mexico or starting points. You know, they're all in Latin America or in what we might think of as the developing world. They demonstrate a range of political experiences from uh, authoritarian, really authoritarian military rule in places like Chile and Guatemala to a slightly lighter version of authoritarian rule in Brazil. Uh, Colombia had been for a long uh, time hailed as a two-party democracy, and yet it's become engaged in a war on drugs and also against guerrilla movements, so that there's a kind of uh, although there are common starting points, there's a range of political experience. They demonstrate similar institutions. They all have presidentialist systems. That is not parliamentary, as in Europe, but you elect a president separately from the election for a legislature. Uh, they show a substantial variety of socioeconomic dimensions. If we were to look at this table, right, and I tell my students, you really don't have to pay attention to the table, but um, nonetheless, you can see that you know, Brazil, for example, had a population in 2008 of over 190 million, uh, compared to Guatemala, 14 million, Mexico uh, with 106, sort of in the middle of this group. GDP per capita shows that, surprisingly, Mexico was, had the highest GDP per capita at this uh, time. Latin America has become an urbanized society. We might have the stereotype in mind of a peasant sort of sleeping next to a cactus with a large sombrero kind of lazily dozing through the afternoon. 
That's not the way it is. Most of Latin America is now uh, urbanized, and that's true for three quarters of the Mexican population. Mexico, although it had the highest GDP per capita, also had one of the highest poverty rates, depending on the national criteria, and a relatively low unemployment rate compared to others. So Mexico's sort of in the middle of a lot of these indicators, but these countries, to me, represent a, a, a kind of a good variety of Latin American experiences that provide us analytical leverage as we uh, try to work on this comparison. So for those of you who are methodologically inclined, this approaches the most similar systems design. I'm not going to do comparison in the way that social scientists really try to do it, which is to hold variables constant and then look for covariation of others. I'm not doing that. I'm trying to establish a, 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 an analytical framework for understanding Mexico. So we're not going to do rigorous hypothesis testing. We'll look at some of these quantitative metrics, and as I say, um, don't worry about the numbers. Their point is to make some observations as a result of the numbers. I do want to see if we could look at not only what happened, but to what extent things happened, so we can begin to make comparisons in that context. And we're, we'll look at political institutions, policy performance, and public opinion, how Mexicans feel about their democracy and about their political system. Okay, so that's the assignment. Uh, now, that's, that said, I'm going to take off my jacket. I wore it as a gesture of respect to all of you. <laughs> this is not a gesture of disrespect. But I'm going to roll up my sleeves and try to get to work. You know, in the early age of cell phones, you were mentioning this. Um, I was lecturing away, listening to my own voice and having a grand time. And one, a cell phone beeped, and a kid picked up his phone, and I was in mid-sentence, and he answered the phone, and he held up his hand to me, as though to say, you can stop your lecturing now, profe, <laughs> right? I'm going to take this call, and then we can resume. Um, I really wanted to grade his final paper, but I had a teaching assistant who took care of that for me. So here we go. First, the transition to electoral democracy. How might it compare with other transitions. This is a, a, a series of indicators developed by an organization called Freedom House. We reverted the numbers so that the higher the score, the more freedom, the more uh, political freedom there is, according to two indicators. One was a political rights score, and one was a civil liberty score. And if you add them up, the maximum would be 12. Okay. So as we look at the shape of Mexican politics, it was kind of around six or seven through most of the 1990s, the 1980s and the 1990s. According to Freedom House's categorization, that would make Mexico partly free at the time. And then it began to climb. Really, it moved up stepwise in 2000 and kept moving up until it reached the level of 10 um, in the early 2000s and then dropped a little bit because of the um, lack of public security and the degrees of political violence surrounding the drug trafficking. But we can see this kind of gradual, stepwise, incremental movement towards more freedom and more democracy in Mexico. And this is in sharp contrast, if you'll permit me, uh, to other countries which tended, let's take the case of Brazil, for example, but Brazil, you see, in 1985, jumped way up with a sudden election and then stayed at pretty high levels. 
Chile also was down here under Pinochet in the mid-1980s, jumped up as a result of a plebiscite in 1988, and then sort of climbed up to the point where Chile actually had the highest score. Uh, Guatemala also, if we can find it, was down here pretty darn low. And then in the 1980s and 1990s, it began to move up. So by the year, by the early part of this century, kind of most of these countries in some way had more or less free and fair elections. But the Mexican pattern is very different, right? The Mexican pattern was one of this gradual accumulation and stepwise increase over time. It was not sudden. There was no big demonstration. There was no result of a military defeat. There was no massive demonstration in the streets. Uh, there was no major institutional crisis. It came in a, in a rather controlled, um, tranquil, and relatively uh, peaceful um, arena, and it had its limitations. What were its limitations? The focus was on elections. This actually has a deep Resonance in Mexican history, the Mexican Revolution of 1910 was fought in the name of free and fair elections, sufragio efectivo y no reelección was the slogan, effective suffrage and no reelection. That used to be on the um, um, headline of every letter signed by a, a Mexican official at the bottom. Uh, so this question of free and fair suffrage is a long-standing issue in Mexico, and that's really what this change was about that came about in gradual fashion as a result of reforms, many of them imposed under the PRI. The PRI thought it was going to win these elections as of the year 2000. It um, managed to sort of liberalize the system so that it could appear to win a legitimate election, and lo and behold, the opposition won, and that was really the major step. But it was not kind of the result of enormous crisis or Tumult. So one of the results is that it was limited. It was limited to elections, and it was limited to mainly national elections. So there's still all kinds of maneuvering that goes on at the provincial, the municipal, and the, and the local level. In fact, the PRI, once it lost the presidency, was still able to retain governorships and mayorships, etc. And that's one reason it was able to come back as it did in the year 2012. So one feature of the transition in Mexico was that it was limited to national elections. Secondly, it did not deal with a major issue in all these other countries, which was control of the military. In all other countries, you know, there had been a military in power, and getting the military under control was a big issue. It remains a substantial issue in countries such as Guatemala, uh, for example. And uh, that, those were major components of the transition toward democracy. Not in Mexico. The military had always served the president loyally, and there was no, no shift. There was no reform of the military or civil-military relations or effort to kind of control the military. So in some senses, the Mexican transition came about in partly because it was, the agenda was so narrow, um, and it was not... So broad. So, um, so the Mexican pattern is different from these others. And we can begin to understand how it happened when we look at it in this comparative context. Now, let's look at some institutional dimensions of Mexican democracy. Um, okay. So the first thing to say is that political turnout in elections, these elections that are now, is about 60%. 
That is 40% of Mexicans don't usually vote. Now, there are two ways you can look at this. One is you can say, well, that's higher than in the United States, where our turnout is about 50%. It's really kind of one of the issues about American democracy is low voter turnout. And in other countries of Latin America, voter turnout is about 70-80%. It's obligatory. The votes are on Sunday. You're supposed to vote. And in fact, Mexico looks more like us in that regard than it looks like other Latin American countries. So this is this question of voter turnout and participation and the extent to which the public sort of accepts um, the outcome of elections. A lot of people are obviously saying, I don't care, I don't bother, it doesn't bother me no mind, I'm just going to let them do. They're all politicians that are the same, you know, they're all crooked, they're all corrupt, etc., etc. So that's at least a, a qualification. Well, on the other hand, we can look at Mexico and surprisingly discover if we count the so-called effective number of political parties. This is a formula that means not only if you have, say, 10 political parties registered, but one of them wins 90% of the votes and the other nine divide up 10%. You really don't have 10 parties. You have sort of one-point-something parties in uh, pr practical fashion. So this, this uh, uh, measurement uh, controls for the effectiveness of competition among political parties. So what do we see? Brazil um, had eight effective political parties. Really a sort of chaotic political scene, right? Too many political parties for voters to make a clear decision on which, which their, what their preference is. Chile, which we might think of as having a three-party system, well, it, it, technically speaking, it had about a five-party system. But if you look at the uh, alliances and coalitions that prevail, it's closer, in fact, to two. Colombia, in fact, is very close to two in keeping with its long history. Guatemala had about three um, point something uh, parties, and Mexico has actually three effective political parties. These parties represent the left, the center, and the right. They're clearly ideologically and programmatically defined, and in this sense, they afford Mexican voters the opportunity to um, vote according to their ideological pre predilection. There are parties to vote for that stand alone and which uh, actually offer, you know, some political scientists would say, this is just a fine fact, right? That Mexico has actually gone from a dominant or one-party system during much of the 20th century to an effective three-party system. We can look at the election results of uh, 2012 uh, where the most pr recent president uh, was elected, and the winner, the PRI, got just about 40% of the vote. The left, notwithstanding um, having a candidate that was sort of worn out, um, uh, got about a third of the vote, and the PAN, the outgoing president's party, dropped quite a bit to have only 25% of the vote. But still, there were three kind of really con contenders there, and the PAN that dropped the most was the party of the outgoing president. So you can see that this sort of three-party pattern continues in Mexico, and in fact, it is an institutional strength of the political system, I would suggest. Another strength of the political system is that with this three-party competition, um, clearly um, parties have to seek new bases of support. You tend to have a divided government, that is, the president's party does not have a majority in Congress anymore, not even now, 
although the PRI won the presidency. And where do you look for new uh, bases of political support? Well, some look for women. And during the course of this gradual transition toward political democracy in Mexico, the representation of women in Mexican politics grew very substantially. Let's look at the year 1990. If you count the proportion of women in legislatures, Mexico had 12%. Chile, although it later had a woman president who was re-elected, only 6%. Guatemala, 7 Colombia, 9 and Brazil, 5 Not very good representation of women as of 1990. Uh, by the year 2000, some countries had begun to uh, install quota systems, which said political parties had to have a certain share of women among their candidates for le- legislative office. Uh, and this began to have an effect within Mexico. But, you know, a kind of limited effect by the year 2000. Mexico has since installed a very effective quota system. So, look, Mexico, by, you know, the bastion of machismo, one of the most backward countries in gender relations in the world, uh, had among these five by far the largest percentage of women in the legislature, uh, rather exceeding the number or the proportion in the United States, one might say, notwithstanding Nancy Pelosi. Uh, and uh, other countries did not have, didn't, either did not have quotas or didn't have effective quota systems. So in this sense, as these parties competed for bases of political support, one of the places they turned to were women and women voters. And in fact, one of the consequences of that was more and more women participating in politics. In fact, the, the uh, most recent presidential candidate of the PAN, of the PAN, was a woman, is still a woman, uh, Josefina Vasquez Mota, a very bright, you know, charming, intelligent uh, person, but the outgoing president's party had lost support because of the degree of drug-related violence and uh, public in- insecurity. But in any event, you know, this is kind of a surprising outcome when you think of stereotypes about Mexico, and I would argue that it is a result of the kind of three-way competition that defines the party system in Mexico. So in this score, Mexico is doing pretty well and better you know, than at least the other countries I've selected here for comparison. Now you can say, well, if you'd had Norway in the comparison, you know, you'd really get a different picture. Right. Um, but you can do this differently, but nonetheless, this is the way, the rules of the game, this is my comparison, so I get to uh, set it up. But to be sure, a lot depends on how you pick the cases for the comparison. And I was looking for cases that sort of bore some resemblance to Mexico so that you could draw legitimate, I thought, concerns. So let's look at governance and policy performance. Now, you can't be sure that these things are the result of politics, but you can at least look at some of the associations that perhaps you might uh, uh, gather. This is trends in per capita. And I know, I know, I know. And my students would say, oh, please, profe, stop. Uh, but let's just look at the percentage of annual growth over this, over this period. Chile had the highest share uh, of average annual growth at over 4%. Chile being the poster child of liberal economics. And Brazil, by the way, I chose for this comparison because it is seen as an emerging power in the international scene. So how does Mexico compare to these, you know, the poster child of liberalism or the oncoming, you know, new giant power? So Colombia, Guatemala, and Mexico have lower states. Only Chile has really a high and sustained uh, average rate of growth during this period. But by the end of it, let's still look at which country has the highest GDP per capita and still... 
is Mexico. Right? So if you look at the level of GDP per capita, Mexico is doing pretty well, in part because of NAFTA, but in part because of other things. More because of other things, I would say. Although the average rate of growth has uh, not been... It's sort of like everybody else other than Chile, right? You know, kind of standard Latin American rate of growth during this period, uh, with the exception of Chile, which is an exception. Uh, and because it was a very small country, in some ways it's easier to build up higher growth rates, I would think. So, okay, that's about growth. So at least the Mexican political system has not unduly deterred the possibility of economic growth. Uh, a second indicator is levels of income inequality, that is unfairness. Uh, Latin America has the highest rate of income inequality for a region in the world. Absolutely. Higher than, say, Africa. You might think Africa might... what. Well, almost everybody's poor in Africa, so the level of inequality isn't so high. Right? In Latin America, there's a major gap between the haves and the have-nots, between the rich and the poor, and that's what the level of inequality captures. So you might look at the percent of income you know, held by the highest 10%. In Brazil, it was 44%. In Chile, over 40%. Colombia, 45%. Guatemala over 40%, and Mexico had the lowest share of income going to the top 10%. Now, it's also true that Mexico has some billionaires, right? More than, more than Western Europe, in fact. But still, the highest 10% captured um, less, you know, less of a share of the income than every place else, and the lowest 20% captured more of a share of the income than everywhere else. So, it's still unequal. I'm not saying this is uh, a, a, a picture of equality, but if we're looking at it in a comparative perspective, you'd have to say inequality is strong in Mexico, but overall it's less strong uh, and less, uh, less pervasive than in other neighboring countries within Latin America. There's also an indi indicator some of you will know called the Gini Index that summarizes all of this stuff in one number and you get the same result. So that's kind of interesting because uh, we think of, you know, Carlos Slim as, you know, one of the richest people in the world. And this is our image of uh, Mexican capitalism. And he is there to be sure. But overall, Mexico is doing less badly, I'd say, on this score than other countries that have similar backgrounds. A composite indicator that brings things together, social and economic, is developed by the, uh, the United Nations. It's called the Human Development Index. It's kind of, um, it has uh, life expectancy, it has level of education, it has income, it combines a bunch of kind of well-being indicators uh, to provide a composite picture of the human development or the quality of life in different uh, uh, countries. Now, you wouldn't be too surprised to discover that um, you know, the Scandinavian countries and New Zealand have the best scores, uh, and uh, places like Somalia have the worst scores, but this is, this, you, you rank, all countries in the world get ranked. Guatemala was 122nd out of uh, the total number of countries. And Chile, as we might expect from stereotype, had the highest rank in the world, followed by Mexico, followed 20 places later by Brazil and Colombia, and then Guatemala. 
So Mexico was not at the top, but it was right after Chile and not that far behind Chile in overall quality of life. And Brazil, the giant of the future, was substantially below Mexico, according to this indicator. So Mexican societal development is maybe stronger than we might think from stereotype, and uh, certainly stronger than that of Brazil, Colombia, and Guatemala. Now, Brazil is about to host the World Cup for soccer. They're going to host the Olympics in 2016. We're already beginning to see uh, on television uh, ads for Brazil. Uh, now, you know, come to Brazil and see the World Cup and this, that, and the other thing. And it's lovely pictures of beaches and uh, lovely women and p- people on the beaches and all sorts of sort of attractive um, ent- ent- enticements. Uh, but in fact, Brazil, by overall standards of quality of life, comes in rather substantially below uh, Mexico, or Mexico comes in higher now, to be sure. You might want to be in the top 10, but um, that tends to be occupied by Western European and Northern European countries, plus New Zealand and, and, and Australia. Uh, but in any event, sort of Mexico is doing okay by this standard. It's by no means in the lowest position within the hemisphere. So then you must say, okay, so Mexican society is doing all right, and uh, the political parties are doing all right, and women are getting representation in the political parties, but we all know that Mexico is so corrupt uh, that that kind of erases, you know, the notion of progress on these other indicators. And to be sure, uh, there are serious issues involving corruption. I mean, the basis of uh, the, mo- the largest magnitude of corruption comes from drug trafficking. This is not exactly, there has been some complicity between uh, elements of the government and the state and drug traffickers, often on the basis of threats. You know, the standard threat that traffickers make to office holders is you want plomo plata. You know, we'll give you silver or we'll give you lead. Which do you want? Um, <laughs> And they mean it uh, because, you know, we can see what's happening and uh, the level of violence has been enormous. It is now discussed much less under the new president uh, who is attempting to change the narrative about Mexico but has not really changed the reality about Mexico about drug trafficking. Uh, In fact, I don't know, some of you might have heard or seen a transcript of the speech that Barack Obama gave in Mexico City last summer uh, talking about the new Mexico, and, and it was really a different narrative. You know, poor Mexico, all these drug traffickers, and so close to the United States, etc. Um, but it, he specifically addressed those remarks to the youth of Mexico, saying, you are going to build a new Mexico, rather than sort of approving the status quo that was prevailing in Mexico at the time. So there are efforts to change the narrative, but that doesn't necessarily change the reality on the ground. So drug trafficking continues. And although, you know, the most wanted drug lord over the last 13 years was recently captured, that doesn't really change much. I mean, do we imagine that Chapo Guzman had not thought about what to do in the possibility that he might be captured? That he didn't have an heir apparent within the cartel or a couple of heirs apparent? Typically what happens is that two or three lieutenants of the captured drug lord start fighting among themselves for control of the cartel, and that produces a wave of violence. Much of the violence in Mexico is drug trafficker on drug trafficker. Uh, But nonetheless, you know, corruption continues. 
on much of it, you know, the drug uh, cartels have corruption budgets. They have bribery budgets. Uh, the police have captured a, a notebook from one of the cartel leaders, you know, what the cost was of a mayor, what the cost of a governor was, and it was kind of a shopping list, you know, like going to, to the supermarket and, uh, and making these investments, which uh, do reveal, at times, sort of involuntary complicity between the state and and uh, the drug traffickers. There's also, a, you know, there's insider information often about uh, uh, economic matters. Uh, there's all kinds of inside trading, this, that, and the other thing. So it's not that corruption is limited to only drug trafficking, but it is a product, at least on the scale uh, that exists, that um, it is very largely associated with drug trafficking. So this is a corruption perception index. And the higher the score, the better you're doing. That is, the less corruption you have. Okay, the lower the score, um, the less good the situation. So Chile, uh, which has a reputation for being not very corrupt, along with Costa Rica, for example, and Uruguay, uh, has the, the best score on these perception. Now, these are perceptions of corruption. It's not actually measurements of corruption, but it's what um, elites and business people and reporters and other people think is the level of corruption within countries. So we have to take this with a grain of salt. But nonetheless, Chile has the best score. And then what? All the other countries are pretty much the same. Not very good scores. Right? The Chile scores are six and seven. Uh, the average score of the others is about 2.5 or three. So to be sure, you know, there is at least a perception of uh, corruption in Mexico, and it can't be denied. But by the same token, it's sort of at very much at the same levels uh, that we see in Brazil and Colombia and Guatemala. Um, so Mexico is not an outlier in this particular sense. You might think it is, but in fact, at least in this degree, as reported by these results, is pretty much, you know, like its neighbors, with the exception of Chile. Chile is the exception. Uruguay and Costa Rica would also be exceptions to this rule. So having looked at this, you know, a couple of years ago, there was much concern in Mexico, or about Mexico, about whether the state was failing in Mexico. Uh, Mexican officials resented even the question, right? And, you know, I'd say, well, now look, it's a question. It's not the fact that you raise the question doesn't mean you have... An answer, it doesn't mean necessarily that uh, the question is biased, but it's a question. Uh, and indeed, one might have to say that at least in certain parts of Mexico, uh, governance is very limited by the state, and mainly the drug traffickers are in charge, the state of Sinaloa, for example, and the corridors, the, the trafficking corridors from uh, various points within Mexico to and through the United States. We might have to say and acknowledge parenthetically that what drives the drug trafficking through Mexico is, of course, you know, consumption and demand in the United States. And what really sustains much of the violence in Mexico is the ability of drug traffickers to purchase arms in Mexico in gun shops along the border. Uh, and they are able to get, you know, very, they're able often to out, their firepower often is greater than that of the military units that are supposed to be chasing them. So the United States bears a substantial role, a substantial amount of responsibility for Mexico's troubles 
uh, that emerged as a consequence of the trafficking of mainly cocaine um, from Colombia through Mexico into the United States, some from marijuana produced in Colombia as well as, as Mexico, and within the United States. You may know that we produce, uh, domestic producers uh, produce about 40% of the marijuana that is consumed in the United States is produced in the United States. So it really is a transnational uh, flow of products and money and weapons that uh, contributes to, the, to this basic problem. So people used to say, well, I wonder if Mexico is a failed state. I mean, there are some places where it's pretty clear that drug traffickers are the effective authorities. Uh, so there is, of course, some social scientists decided to create a failed state index. Uh, so all we have to do is look at the results and uh, analyze them. But if we look at the, let's look at the rank, where you rank on the failed state index. Chile has a low likelihood of being a failed state. It's 155th out of 177. Chile is not a problem, right? Colombia was rated 46 because of its long-standing drug wars and wars with guerrilla operations as well. Uh, Guatemala uh, was in 72nd place. Mexico was right around the middle, 96. Brazil um, was better off than Mexico. And Chile is substantially better than um, these other four countries. But what you'd have to say is, um, you know, that, that um, Mexico is not a failed state. That is, by the criteria of the people who measure this, Mexico was a so-called borderline case. There were some states that were failing or failed. Some states were in danger of failing. Then there was a third category of borderland borderline could become a failing state and others that were not in danger. So Mexico was not even close to really being in the category of a failed state as of this kind of criterion. So it's, uh, you know, in this sense, Mexico, again, is doing okay. You know, it's not doing great. Um, it's not sort of doing as well as Chile, for example. Uh, but it is um, uh, doing substantially better than its near neighbor, uh, Guatemala and Colombia. So it's not a failed state. Okay? There are challenges to the authority of the state, but it's not a failed state. So it's look, we're looking now at a political system that has free and fair elections at the national level, that has a stable institutionalized three-party system, that has open doors to effective political participation by women as well as other uh, marginalized groups in society that has managed to sustain uh, uh, among Latin American countries a high level of income per capita, has had some difficulties with economic growth through major crises in the 1980s, another crisis in the 1990s, another crisis you know, when we had our financial uh, crash in 2008-2009. So Mexico's had a lot of crises, some of which are imported from elsewhere. But nonetheless, you know, it still has been able to sustain, relatively speaking, a substantial level of um, increasing prosperity. Most people say that the middle class in Mexico is growing. Uh, I think there's some exaggeration in some of the calculations that people make. But nonetheless, uh, Mexico is developing and changing and growing under at least 
free and fair elections at the national level. So what do people think in Mexico? Well, of course, you know, there is indicators. Thank the Lord, you know, kind of all I had to do was sort of, you know, get online and go surfing and get some numbers. Uh, but here's the attitudes toward democracy. Support for the idea of democracy. A percent in a, in a public opinion poll. The percent that agree with the statement that democracy is preferable to any other kind of political system. So in Brazil, which by this time had re-elected its working class president, Lula, Brazil was on the rise. You might imagine that Brazil was going to be a very ebullient and optimistic society with regard to its political system. Just about half people express support no matter what. Uh, in Chile, you might say Chile has the best democracy of these. Chile, a little less than half. Uh, Colombia had just about half support uh, for democracy as the best political system. Guatemala, given its checkered history and conflict and military rule and sort of per, uh, perpetuation of authoritarian traditions, only 40% express support for democracy. But Mexico, among these countries, barely, but still, express the most abstract support for democracy as uh, preferable to any other kind of political system. So Mexico, as having undergone this gradual incremental transition toward electoral democracy, actually had, I mean, these, are, these differences are probably within the, the bounds of uh, probability. But still, you know, the results for Mexico are not, you know, 90%, but still uh, well over 50% at this time. Now, there's a different question that was asked about satisfaction with democracy. Are you satisfied with the way democracy works? And this is a sort of broad question because it could mean, are you satisfied with your life? Are you satisfied with your personal condition? Are you satisfied with you know, your domestic arrangements? Are you satisfied with whatever? Um, but the question was, are you satisfied with the performance of democracy in the country? So look at Brazil, which again, is the emerging giant of uh, the region, uh, just about a third. Uh, Chile had the highest degree of satisfaction. Colombia and Guatemala were tied. And Mexico, interestingly enough, was just about like Brazil. Mexico and Brazil had very similar profiles of, um, you know, a little over 50% abstract support for democracy and about one third support for the actual operation. Of democracy, there's a kind of cynicism and skepticism, and uh, judgmental quality. I think in, within Mexican attitudes, and given its uh, difficult and checkered and complicated political history, I would venture to suggest that that's not an, an enormous surprise. But it does say that there's kind of a conditional um, basis to support for democracy. That the level of support is not that high, at, at around one half and level of satisfaction uh, at one-third is, is, is not high. Uh, so we see the public kind of interacting with the political system in an in interesting kind of um, paradoxical fashion. So the last of these slides, I'm happy to say, you're happy to hear, um, has to do with degree of confidence in, in different political institutions. Let's just not look at democracy or the political system, but confidence within institu about institutions. So let's take, say, private enterprise. Um, the degree of confidence that, you know, the business sector is going to do good things for the country. 
Uh, 42% in Brazil, a little lower in Chile, 45% in Colombia, uh, a substantial drop. Mexico is just like these, these other countries, Brazil and Colombia at 43%. The government in general, Brazil 35%, um, higher uh, rates in Colombia and Chile. And again, Mexico looks pretty much like uh, Brazil on this score. Support for the president is higher than for the government in Brazil uh, and Chile and Colombia, with the exception of Guatemala. So the individual president gets higher marks than the government. And that was always a paradox to me. You'd look at um, public opinion polls, let's say about Felipe Calderon, the ex-president of Mexico, and uh, people would say, boy, the government is really terrible, but I love Felipe Calderon. I mean, he had outgoing sort of a, a approval ratings high in the 60s. For political parties, let's just look at Congress. This is interesting because the Mexican Congress became empowered with democratization uh, and with a three-party system, the president's party never had a full majority. So you had a divided government and Congress would often resist the executive on various initiatives. Um, and what we see here is that Mexico, which used to have the most ridiculed Congress in, um, among them in Latin America, now had the highest rate of support for the Congress among these five countries. So there's a recognition of institutional transformation within Mexico that is reflected in these numbers. Now, you might want to see much higher numbers, but still, uh, in a comparative context, the Mexican Congress does reasonably well. Political parties do second best. Interesting, Guatemala has the highest level of support for political parties. I think that's because the political parties offset the military. So the idea is that you know, parties in general are better for the uh, society than the, than the military. But political parties in Mexico got at least higher scores than, uh, than in other countries. And the court system understandably got lower scores. The uh, courts in Mexico are still struggling to acquire independence and autonomy and full um, capacities within Mexico. So on the other hand, so what do we see here? A nuanced picture, right? Uh, quite a sophisticated public um, evaluation of political institutions and uh, political um, operations and political um, functioning uh, within Mexico, you know, kind of they're, they're alert, they're making judgments, uh, they are willing to express their judgments, and in some ways they uh, cast sort of at least moderate levels of, of approval that are at least no less uh, approving or supportive than in the other countries that we study, with the partial exception of Chile. So what would we say about all of this, of Mexico in comparative perspective, decades after that long bus ride of mine that uh, led to this, um, I wouldn't say led to this paper, but uh, that uh, uh, led to more than that. Um, but uh, what sort of wrap-up could we have here? I think the, um, the first thing you could say is that um, Mexico is not... Um, a unique society in these regards. It's often kind of in the middle of the pack when you look at these. It's not an outlier. So when you say, como Mexico no hay dos, that there's no other country like Mexico, you can say, well, hell, now, wait a minute. You know, your experience, your political experience fits very well within the boundaries of, generally speaking, political experiences in Latin America, at least as represented 
by these other four, four countries. You know, there are some differences and comings and goings, but nonetheless, you know, you fit within this overall uh, framework. I think secondly, um, for people in Mexico particularly who don't like the idea of comparison, you know, you can say according to some of these indicators, uh, Mexico is not doing as well as Chile, and that's probably not surprising, uh, with the exception of GDP per capita and some of the other economic in indicators. But what is interesting to me, and I would think to uh, Mexicano, is the comparison with Brazil. Brazil, according to you know, media hype, is supposed to be way ahead of everybody uh, in all of these indicators and, on, and these sort of indications of the quality of democracy and the quality of life. But if you look at many of them, from representation of women uh, to the Human Development Index, to some of the economic growth or to uh, inequality or unequal distribution of income, Mexico is doing substantially better than Brazil. So it doesn't mean we have to sort of transform our judgments, but nonetheless to take into account that whatever difficulties Mexico might be having on some of these questions, uh, it is doing on a number of these fronts better than even Brazil, which has received such uh, strong support and media hype over the past decade as an emerging giant, which um, is another question we can take up during the Q&Answer here. So finally, I would say, you know, in this slide, um, we learned something. I learned something about Mexico in these things. I was surprised by some of these results. Um, I didn't, I, actually, to be entirely honest, I didn't think Mexico would do as well as it did in comparison to many, uh, to some of these other countries, especially on the indicators where Mexico has been doing better than, than Brazil. So um, the comparison helps. I mean, it doesn't sort of necessarily fix our judgments, but it can give us a kind of context for making, uh, um, reaching the evaluations that we reach and the judgments that we reach. So we're doing it within a knowledgeable context of what the boundaries of expectation might be uh, and what the plausible sort of range of possibility uh, might be, and we can sort of exercise our imagination within those boundaries or even about those boundaries. But nonetheless, I found this a surprising exercise. I hope you found it an enlightening exercise. And I appreciate very much your willingness to sit through uh, this presentation of all of this statistical data, which, you know, students just groan. Uh, and I have to sort of address them with deep apologies. Uh, but nonetheless, um, if we can sort of focus on the content of what is suggested by the numbers rather than the numbers themselves, it seems to me that we can learn some things. Certainly I have done so, and I hope that you have too. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.